Hello, and welcome to One Real Good Thing, where we dive into one thing you can do today to propel your life in a healthy direction. I'm Ellie Krieger, and in this episode, I'm talking with the incredible Nick Sharma, the writer, photographer, and recipe developer behind A Brown Table, an award-winning blog, and the author of the cookbook, The Flavor Equation. He's sharing his top tricks for building flavor healthfully. Listen. Nick Sharma, what a treat to have you here. I am such a fan of your work, and I love your new book, The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained, and More Than 100 Essential Recipes. It's a beautiful book, and I love the concept of it, and I'm so thrilled to have you here. Oh my gosh, I'm so thrilled to be here. I like. I feel like I've had a big food crush on you forever. So oh, really? So exciting to be with you on the show. <laughs> Yay for mutual food crushes. Um, Well, one of the reasons why I'm especially thrilled to have you here and talking about flavor, because your one real good thing is to build flavor healthfully. Um, So me as a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and chef, I feel like very often flavor is missing from the conversation about nutrition. And I think it's a really big problem because flavor is essential to nutrition. And it just, it gets ignored somehow because we talk about grams of this and what this is going to do for your body, but none of it's going to do anything if people don't eat it and people don't want to eat it. And if it's not compellingly delicious. So thank you for being here to talk about flavor and to talk about and help people build flavor in their foods healthfully, because I think my listeners will really value that. Um, So first of all, I guess I want to launch by asking you to explain this flavor equation. I mean, you spell it out very specifically. What are the elements of flavor? And and we can talk about each one a little bit, but I'd love you to just give us a little little overview of what makes something flavorful. Okay. Before we get into that, just a little bit of a background. The reason why I wrote the flavor equation, I started out as a molecular biologist. My background was in biochemistry. And for the longest time when I lived in D.C., the research I did at Georgetown was on taste, on salt and, uh, and sugar. And then after that, I left to become a pastry cook and then moved on to food writing. And so the flavor equation was the book that I've always wanted to write to kind of encompass what I had professionally gone to school to study. And then kind of what I walked away from because I love something to study and, you know, work as a cook. And so it's the culmination of both those things. So for me, flavor is something kind of like an umbrella with its different spokes. And then you have all these different things that fall that fall off at the ends of the spokes. So you've got, you know, aroma and taste, which are the two most common things all of us talk about, especially taste is the one topic that comes up as food writers. Then we've got aroma, which is actually the more, I think the more important element, because that's what actually gives taste that extra kick. Without aroma, taste is kind of blah. And then also kind of the senses because eating, cooking and eating are both a very sensory, heavy sensory loaded experience. You've got texture. So you that's what scientists call mouthfeel. So when you touch something and you're tasting it in your mouth, those also impinge on our nerves and create all these different responses and make the process of cooking and eating enjoyable. And then you've got um, the sense of sight and vision. So you look at something when you're going to the grocery store and you know, when you're hungry, you go to the grocery store and you shop for all these things that you might not need. But 
it is also a thing for those of us who are fortunate to see, who can see and, uh, you know, food, color, shapes, all influence our perception of flavor. And then there's memory and emotion which work together because as a food writer, that's one of the things you're always taught to. Okay, right. Why this dish is important to you. And a lot of the foods that I cook are either driven through nostalgia or it's something that I'm excited to eat or cook. So uh, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about flavor as this more big experience. And also I can't forget sound because sound is such an important part of cooking. You hear something fall or drop in the kitchen or even when you're cooking the sounds that food makes, it's quite exciting. Go to a restaurant and you crack the crust, or creme brulee. It kind of creates that anticipation, that excitement in eating. So that's what the flavor equation is all about. It's looking at flavor as the more holistic picture, which is what it is for, in my opinion, and I hope for everyone else. In it's more than just like stuffing food down to hit like a certain calorie count or whatever. It's it's just so much more. So how amazing. I had no idea that you had that background in molecular biology. It wasn't in your bio that you sent me. So that was that was good to sneak that in there here. But I, I love that. I love that you come at this from this perspective because it shows in the book and that type of analysis. I really, maybe it's one reason why I'm really drawn to this work. Um, and because you really break down in each recipe, what are the fla- elements of the flavor equation? But I want to just kind of emphasize a few things that you just talked about. One is that taste and flavor are different because most people might equate them in their mind. So taste is literally, and and, and feel free to chime in here if you want to add or like disagree with me on any of this. Um, the taste is specifically the receptors on your tongue, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, umami, and maybe a couple of others that are contentious whether, but it, that's the specific experience of these connect, these reactors on your tongue. Whereas flavor, as you're describing it, and as it is understood, is really such a bigger umbrella, as you say, of all these different, of pretty much every sense you can imagine. And I love how, so like you're saying, it's sight, it's touch, it's sound, it's aroma, it's memory. And this whole notion of memory, I think, is really undervalued because so much of how we experience food has to do with how we feel about it, our emotional reaction to it. And I think that's one of the things that fast food companies and a lot of processed food companies have done a really good job at manipulating us with. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things from a health point of view is looking at this emotional reaction that we have to food and thinking, how can I manipulate the situation so that I create food memories that are healthful so how do we do that in our lives? So, I mean, that could be like a whole topic of a podcast itself, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about that. I have a million thoughts about that, but, but um, how do you think maybe, you know, playing with that emotional aspect of flavor, um, we can do that in a healthy way, or how does that contribute to well-being? I mean, you're absolutely right that marketing people manipulate the equation. Literally, they manipulate the flavor equation to, you know, kind of train us. We've been primed in many ways to know what foods should excite us and shouldn't excite us. It's very interesting. And it's also in the way we write as food writers. If you look at some of these uh, of the prominent food websites, look at what words are used. Sweets always used. It is even used in savory dishes. 
when describing savory dishes. So even the words that we write about food, one of the actually one of the things to remember is that of all the elements in the flavor equation, taste is the only one where the words used to describe specific taste kind of respond to a, correspond directly to an emotion. Bitter, sweet, sour, people can mm. be described as that, right? Mm. And so there's this like huge personal component. And I guess it's because there aren't aromas that are just all over the place. So it's really difficult to pinpoint them down into something. But uh, because those words are so directly tied to mammalian emotions or human emotions as well, um, it is something that's also manipulated in food writing. And as a food writer, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I feel when, you know, you go to these prominent websites, look at recipes that describe savoriness. There's like, there's a struggle to explain savoriness. So they'll say, oh, the meat tastes sweeter. In reality, you might not actually like notice something sweet, bitter. You know, people will always say, oh, so we cook this bitter vegetable, but we won't write the word bitter in there. We're going to describe as we seasoned it and now it's tasting bittersweet. But the reality sometimes is when you go taste those dishes, you don't really sense anything sweet. Now, it's true that people will also season food to cover up bitter taste because that's one of the things that I know a lot of people struggle with. But definitely, um, I think the perception of how flavor is, is something that's manipulated, but it is also done through cooking. There are certain tastes um, like, you know, sour and salt and bitter that I mentioned earlier. These are all tastes that some people can handle either more than the average person or less than the average person. So we've developed ways to cook and either mask or tone it down quite a bit or amplify them. And I think it's so interesting as uh, also if you just like to look at the way human behavior is and evolved, how these two things are taking place simultaneously, both in the way we cook, but also in the way we write and we advertise about food. Right. Having that awareness as a food writer. And, and oftentimes, I mean, because I think bitter is an essential element and makes food so much more pleasurable, but it is generally thought of as like a negative, right? A bitter mm -hmm. person, as you say, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I usually say the words pleasantly bitter um, to kind of say like, hey, this is bitter, but in a good way, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I often will use that to your point. But in terms of the emotion, um, one of the things I think, so in t let's take each one of these kind of elements in a way and talk about how to build flavor healthfully. So if we look at each of these aspects of the flavor equation, mm -hmm. and we think, how do we do that in a healthful way? I think that's a very interesting point because many people think flavor oh, why did this taste so good in the restaurant? Oh, because they used a ton of butter and a ton of salt and maybe a ton of bacon fat. So I think that it, those things are definitely flavorful for sure, right? That builds flavor. However, there are so many ways to build flavor healthfully. So let's like really dig into each one of these things. Yeah. I, number one on your list here is emotion. So I'm just going to chime in with this because as a mom, um, I was very keyed into this notion of emotion and healthful eating. And my own experiences, for example, every year going apple picking with my family and how we'd go home and we would make this big applesauce. So applesauce to me has the most wonderful emotional connection. Um, and it's a very healthful thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think when I was 
raising my daughter. She's 20 now. Um, but throughout her life, I really started to think about what types of memories am I creating with her? And can I do this? Not necessarily always around cookies and sometimes for sure around cookies. No question. Mm -hmm. We made brownies. We made cookies. She loves sweets and I'm not taking away from the joy of that, but it doesn't only have to be about that. So it was also about getting squash and exploring inside and toasting the seeds with a little bit of, um, you know, salt and whatever seasoning we were looking at that day. Um, and then roasting the squash. And it was like, the kid loves squash now because I think in part because of those memories. And of course it's delicious. Um, so that's one way to tap into and make the most of these memories that it's, and this emotion around food. I just think this is fascinating. And again, we could dig into it um, for a long time, but then also on your list sight. So how food looks, right? Um, we eat with our eyes. So how can we use healthful ingredients to make food more appealing? Um, for me, it's yeah. sort of easy because herbs, fresh herbs, you use a ton of those in your book. Um, fruits and vegetables are so colorful and so, and, and build the plate so beautifully. So to me, it kind of comes hand in hand with healthy eating, that visual aspect. Yeah, I think one, one of the things you bring up is such an important point. Uh, I've heard a lot of food writers also say this, brown food is actually the most ugly food, but the tastiest. Because a lot of the foods that we eat, they undergo these chemical reactions and they turn brown. And a great way to make it more attractive is against a sea of just brown boringness is to throw in fresh herbs, you know, smatter it with a lot of like fresh herbs, and whatever herbs you like, whatever you think complements the dish, there's so many choices available. Uh, you know, a pop of green is just so vibrant against that. You can throw in, you know, green chili peppers, red chili peppers, just thinly sliced, you know, it just adds so much contrast. So I'm all about that. I, you know, sometimes I feel even the most boring dish can be made really attractive. And even if you can't come up with anything, put it on a pretty plate. That's like the simplest thing because <laughs> humans are so much driven by what they see as um, at least people that can see, uh, can have the sense of vision, whatever you see first, especially in this day of age of social media, Instagram, TikTok, and all these different platforms, they're not really looking at the flavor so much these days. They're so interested in how it looks and it catches their uh, attention. Someone just told me, I think it's in the first one-tenth of a second that you sell a recipe to someone. And after that, even if the video is longer, it really doesn't make a difference to them. So I think like catching the attention of a person when they see food on the table, it doesn't have to be plated like a, some fancy restaurant with all those dots and crosses that you need to like, you know, connect. It should just be something simple in a nice bowl or a plate with fresh herbs. And that's it. The other thing that I like to do sometimes is if all else fails, create a, I call this create some drama at the table where, you know, instead of adding fresh lemon juice or lime juice on a dish in the kitchen, I'll do it in front of the guests at the table or I'll open the dish at the table. So the steam comes out, it creates that kind of wow moment for people. So they're more enticed to consume food. So I, oh, I love that tip. And with the steam, then you're also getting that, you're hitting that aroma. Yeah. yeah. It, it's intensified there. So there's so many fun ways 
to kind of build that with fresh herbs, fresh ingredients, colorful vegetables and fruit. Those make a huge difference. Even just adding them in front of people while they're there, they get more excited because they're a part of that process with you. So there, I think there's just so many ways to build on that. Oh, I love that tip. I've taken to lately for stews. Like I did a, uh, just a simple white bean stew, which was not brownish, but definitely plain in color. Um, and then I, and even brown stews or chilies and stuff, I just take a little fresh salad, like almost a little red cabbage salad with maybe some apple in it or green apple. And I just put that fresh salad on top, just a little mound of it. And it, it acts like a garnish, but it's actually just like having a salad and your stew sort of in one. in one. And I, I kind of really enjoy that lately in terms of plating. Um, but I love these tips. Thank you so much for sharing. And, and so one of the things, speaking of brown foods that are absolutely amazing, is that I made your lamb koftas in almond gravy. Okay. And oh my goodness, this recipe was delicious. I mean, I love lamb. And these lamb meatballs um, were just beautifully seasoned with ginger, coriander, turmeric, um, and then, and simple to make. And then in this almond gravy, which I had never heard of this, and it was just this beautiful, creamy sauce that was made with almond flour. So I just, I love this dish and I wound up riffing on it in my Washington Post column. If uh, if y'all haven't seen it, um, I hope you'll take a peek at it. I'll, I'll, I'll get it on my website, actually, my um, my version of this recipe because the almond gravy is fabulous. And I felt like I could use it for a million and one things. I feel like it would be delicious on just about anything. So tell us about this almond gravy and why this hits, you know, these flavor notes and it's definitely Brown and we definitely add some beautiful herbs. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely Brown. That's true. One of the dishes that, so I grew up in India and I, you know, I ate a lot of meatballs growing up. Usually they were either made with beef or lamb. Um, and I wanted to kind of showcase a recipe that I had eaten in the North where my dad's from, my mother's from the West coast and my dad's from the North. And so this dish is based on that kofta, uh, lamb koftas are based on this particular dish that I've tried, which has its origins from the Mughal empire, which ruled India. And one of the ingredients that they often used to thicken their stews and gravy were almonds. So they would be soaked in water, blanched. And then another thing that water does is that it hydrates the almonds. So it's easier to break down when you grind them. And what you do is you blend them till it becomes really smooth. So I didn't want people to like have this extra step and your almond flour is really easily available. So I said, you know, just like skip all of that, just to add some almond flour. And it works really well. It's ground fine. It thickens really well. And what it does is that it creates this luscious velvety uh, texture to the stew. And it works really well with the lambs. It's nutritious. And it also, I think for me, especially with textures, sometimes for me in nostalgia, I always find myself drawn to textures that are very thick, creamy, kind of soothing. And that's what it did for me. And it's just such a simple dish to put together. But uh, yeah, it's based on a texture and an ingredient that I noticed was predominantly used in North Indian uh cooking that was in uh, that comes from the Mughal Empire. Yes. And I love that you're getting that creaminess in a way that is so healthful. And it really just adds that deep richness and that satisfaction 
to just about anything. I wound up doing it with uh, spice roasted vegetables. I use the same kinds of spices and I roasted vegetables and chickpeas and I use the sauce for that. So loved it with lamb. Um, for more for me for every day, I loved having also a vegetarian option. It's mm -hmm. actually a vegan option, which is lovely. Um, so definitely check that out in the book, you guys, and I'll post my recipe on my website. Um, but also let's talk about umami because I think the lamb with the almonds sauce definitely has a ton of umami in it, which is the taste of savoriness, right? Mm -hmm. And building umami is another way to build flavor healthfully because there are so many great ingredients with umami and it really means a lot to the palate to have that umami taste. You do this in your man chow soup. You do this, I'm sure, I know throughout your book. So tell us about how to build umami. So umami, as you mentioned, is the savory, is the taste of savoriness. And usually typical people will associate that with meat uh, in our food. But you also get it from vegetables, mushrooms being one of the most easily available ingredients. In fact, uh, I always say this. One of the things, about, and this is so, I guess, different dark to sound depressing to say this one of the things about food is that in order for life to survive something needs to die and it's i think it's it's most apparent with umami with mushrooms because take the shiitake mushroom fresh shiitake has very very low levels of these umami molecules now you go dry it it undergoes the DNA inside and uh, not the DNA, sorry, the ribonucleic acid inside undergoes certain uh, chemical reactions as a process of death because the mushroom is dying. And that, those mol that process creates all these molecules that are amplified so high that when you take dried shiitake mushrooms, which are dead and dry, make stock with them. That tea that comes out from those steep mushrooms is so savory and beautiful. And that's why I say like something has to die for it to be yeah. flavorful and for us to get nourishment. I but think that's, that's, they also call that the noble rot, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've heard that for things like molds and things or, and, and fermenting is the, the noble yeah. rot is what it's called. And, and it's those fermented vegetables also like fermented, um, anything fermented, really fermented cheeses, fermented sauces, like soy sauce, fermented beans, like in soy sauce, for example, or fermented mm -hmm. fish as in fish sauce, that's all going to produce that umami flavor. So yeah, to your point, I get that. Yeah. I mean, that's the cycle of life, I suppose. Right. And, you know, the mancha soup, uh, man the mancha soup is something that I really wanted to write about because it's a recipe that's never seen outside India, at least in my experience. You only see it at Indo-Chinese restaurants, especially in India. And I wanted to kind of showcase that cuisine, that part of India's culture in the book. And this recipe is very simple. It relies on a vegetable stock. You can also make this with chicken stock if you want to add meat to it. Usually it's either chicken or um, vegetables. And you've got soy sauce which adds that savory character and there you've also got uh you know the aromatics then aromatics like onion and garlic those are the things when you cook them down they start to become more savory which is why we use them in a lot of soups and stews you've got that and then that's pretty much it for it of course if you want to make it even more robust get mushroom stock like the shiitake and use that in here and it will build this whole intense savory profile you can also add a pinch of MSG which is actually what used to be done in India. Um, and then, you know, 
let's see what other ingredients you could add even fish sauce i do like fish sauce sometimes uh, because it's just like a tiny drop of fish sauce goes so far and in many ways because these ingredients are also high in salt you don't really need to add salt to a lot of these dishes then right and, and yeah um there's one of the things i also try to do with a lot of my cooking is i control the amount of salt that i use i feel sometimes a lot of dishes don't you don't really need to season them as you cook which is something you're taught as a cook season as you go along because a lot of ingredients sometimes like preserved lemons if i throw them in suddenly in between it's going to add a lot of saltiness so let me just wait till the end unless it's going to affect texture there's no need to add salt and i think we digress on the topic of umami. no but i Sorry. would love to so first of all the soup is wonderful just to wrap up with this umami thing so build the more umami ingredients you add it actually has a synergistic effect so they don't just add up but they kind of multiply each other so if you start to add mushrooms and also i'm going to mention like tomatoes particularly cooked tomatoes or dried tomatoes fermented foods aged cheeses these types of foods all are rich in umami. So like Parmesan cheese, right? Mm -hmm. um, they uh, add to each other, uh, they multiply each other. So when you start to layer these flavors, you're doing it in a healthy way. Um, all these wonderful, healthful ingredients add so much flavor. So for building flavor for that, but I, I'm glad that you segued to the salt conversation, because I really wanted to talk about that, because a lot of people think and they're not entirely wrong that one of the reasons food tastes so good in restaurants is because they just pour the salt on, which they do. And so I love that you're um, more judicious about salt. And I think people often have very black or white thinking about salt. I've had people email me saying, Ellie, I made this soup with no salt and it tasted terrible. What should I do? And my answer is put salt in it. <laughs> I remember typing that because it's not an all or nothing proposition here. Salt is an important aspect of flavor. It's an important, it's a key element of flavor. Um, however, we don't have to lean on it so heavily. So when we're using all of these other wonderful ingredients and we're adding some ingredients that are already kind of salty to your point, like preserved lemons have a lot are, are preserved in salt <laughs> um, or if we're adding mustard, that's a very salty hot sauce is salty. Um, adding these things first and then going back and saying, now how much salt do we need to bring this together is a really smart approach. Um, but one aspect that you talk about in the book that I really wanted everyone to know about is this connection between acids, uh, tangy foods like um, acids, like vinegars and lemon juice and lime juice, the connection between that and salt. So if you could spell that out for us, I think that's, it's really fascinating. And I think it could help people reduce the salt in their food if they're seeking to do that. And not everyone on the planet needs to reduce the salt in their food, but many of us are really looking to do that and would benefit from that. Um, so acid can help us. How? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most important things you mentioned is that, yes, salt is demonized. Like, actually, we do this with all our ingredients from fat to sugar to salt. Um, they're not Please people, stop, everybody. Right? Yes. They're not people. They can't be demons. They don't have so, like, I mean, they can't be good or bad. What all these ingredients are essential to our function, like salt. One of the research projects I worked on at Georgetown was to study the salt responses in people, how they respond to salt. And what we found was that even people who were on sustained low sodium diets for a really long time, they started to, some of them started to show signs of osteoporosis because the body tries to reach equilibrium and then it pushes you in one direction. So if your sodium levels fall really low 
over a long period of time, the biggest bank in our body for sodium is the bone. So the hormones then, the brain sends these hormones out, which then triggers the bone to start releasing sodium. Bones get weaker and your sodium levels are up. So, the, you know, you mammals in general will not live without salt. You know, you tell people don't eat salt. They'll go find some way to eat salt. Animals do this too in, uh, you know, a dietary studies. So those are the hardest to kind of pinpoint things. But one of the things with, I think is so beautiful that we always think of taste receptors as sitting on the tongue and just responding to one thing at a time. They do a lot more than that. In fact, taste receptors are not only present in the mouth, they're also present in our gut and they signal different things. They do a lot more than, than just taste. And the what scientists have learned is that the taste receptors also cross talk in a certain way. And this is particularly true for the taste receptors that send sour and the taste receptors that send salt. What really works to our advantage is that if you want sour amplifies saltiness, saltiness amplifies sour, which means that if you want to cut back on any one of those things, for example, if you're having acid reflux disease, you can have a lot of acids, right? But maybe you can have salt. So you could kind of like add a little bit more salt, just a tiny pinch to see if that affects. Same way, it, it's also true in the reverse. Like if you, if you have to cut back salt for hypertension or high blood pressure, whatever reasons, cut it back, add more acid. So add more lemon juice. And I do that at home quite a bit because I don't like eating that much salt. I get very thirsty afterwards. And it's one of those things where, you know, I have a lot of acid, like I have half a lemon that I'm going to use in the recipe. Is it going to kill me to add the other half to, I don't want to save it in the fridge. Let me just toss it in right now. And if it works, it works. You know, it's so easy. With desserts, I've noticed there is a tendency, especially in American cookbooks, to always add one eight teaspoon, one four teaspoon of salt. You never see that in European dessert books. Hmm. The only place you see it is with bread, which I understand because you won't taste the sweetness of bread really that dramatically. You need that little bit of salt to kind of enhance that. And you see that in cakes. Those are two places where I think it's necessary. But I've seen recipes where people will throw in cream cheese and then tell them to add like more salt to it. Cream cheese is already salty. Why would you ask people to do that? So I think understanding your ingredients, knowing how much salt is there, how much sugar is there, is so helpful as a for me as a recipe developer, but also to people who are cooking at home, know your ingredients, read the back of the label and see if it says salt, because a lot of ingredients today just have salt added. And a lot of vegetables like tomatoes already rich in salt. If you're right. adding like a concentrated, uh, say, tablespoonful of tomato paste, well, you don't need to add any more salt probably to a dish. So that's why I tell people, unless salt is going to enhance texture, which when we cook, we do add salt sometimes to make beans softer during cooking when boiling or um, concentrate like vegetables as they're cooking or something. Yeah. So even when I make vegetable stock, I never add salt because you're going to concentrate it down eventually to make space to stick it in your freezer. Uh, there's no need to add salt. Yes. Salt will help make it last longer. If it's frozen, you're usually fine. If you're, of course, you're keeping it in the fridge, then yes, you know, add a little bit of salt or use it faster but i think there are so many times where in a recipe you really don't need to add salt and you can get away with it so if you hold back on the salt and maybe add a little bit of lemon juice or lime juice let's say you're making just simple steamed vegetables and you're going to put a little bit of fat on there maybe 
maybe a little bit of butter. And then you think, oh, butter and salt, right? But if you hold back on that and you put a little lemon juice or lime juice, and then put a little, then you need maybe half the salt. Yeah. So it's that type of thing that you can do just simply every day in terms of that flavor. Um, I love in your chickpea salad with date and tamarind dressing, which I'm making as soon as possible. It looks so delicious. And you, you talk about this exact kind of concept. You say, when you taste and season the dressing in this recipe, make a mental note and observe how much salt you use as sourness changes the perception of saltiness. So that's the exact concept. So if you add your acids first and then you taste and then you decide how much salt, that is just a really good habit to kind of get into. So I love that you point that out there. So there are so many amazing tips that you're offering here. Thank you so much for enlightening us as to all these great ways to build flavor healthfully. I hope everyone checks out your book, The Flavor Equation, because it's fabulous. And also your blog, A Brown Table, which I'll have a link to all everything Nick Sharma on my website. I will have a link for that. Um, so thank you so much for being here and for sharing with us and, and teaching us so much. Thank you for having me. It's been such a joy. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope we're leaving you with more tools and inspiration for building flavor healthfully. Join me next time for another one real good thing. <laughs>